I'd just like to say a few words about meditation before we start to practice together. Hmm. So a lot of the time when we've been uh, learning meditation together and hearing instructions, a lot of the time, especially if you're, um, if you're learning meditation through sitting groups, what happens often is that you keep hearing the instructions for returning to the breath. And so often we can have the impression that meditation is simply um, concentrating, becoming a concentrated person. And certainly um, that's a very beautiful and useful ground to establish because the mind can be so crazy and distracted and we need a mind that's clear and direct and focused and concentrated um, so that we can look at the nature of reality clearly and see it clearly through insight. So the practice that the Buddha taught for um, calming the mind and um, paying attention in the present moment without judgment or commentary or analysis is established in the Satipatthana Sutta. And Satipatthana loosely is translated as establishments of mindfulness or uh, often translated as the foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations specifically of mindfulness. And so we start clearly with paying attention to the breathing of the body and we try to get that as clear as is possible with a rhythmic way of returning to the breath so that the mind has in a way a, um, a yoke a, a kind of post when the Buddha used this um, this metaphor that mindfulness of the body which of course includes mindfulness of breathing is a post that we plant in the ground and and he said we can we tie six animals to this um, post and of course the six animals represent the six uh, senses the five physical senses in the mind and he said what happens when we do that when we establish the post in the ground and we tie the six animals to it. They kind of at first walk around, they wander around and they try to find their place around this pole. But then eventually what happens is they all lie down next to the pole. And if you've ever been on a farm and watched animals and their behavior, it's absolutely right, that's what they do. So what he was establishing was these, uh, this uh, mindfulness of the body as of course the first foundation of mindfulness 
as the posts that we put in the ground and the six senses eventually um, come to rest around this pole. So as you all may already know, but I'm going to tell you anyway, again, in case you haven't uh, studied this or haven't been instructed in this way, the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishments of mindfulness are mindfulness of the body. Hello, John, I didn't see you over there. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of what we call Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, it's a Pali word for feelings, the feeling tones that arise with every contact, every physical contact of uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the third establishment of mindfulness as mindfulness of citta, the mind, which is the states of mind that come in an adventitious way, they arise and pass and arise and pass. So we have moods of the mind that come in and color the mind and they can be um, uh, mind, a mind that's filled with greed, hatred and delusion, the defilements, or their opposite, generosity, love and clarity. And each time one of these moods of the mind of the citta comes into the mind, it colors it so that we, it colors the consciousness in the mind. So we pay attention to these moods of the mind or we, and the fourth it was called dhammas, D-H-A-M-M-A-S, which is ways, a kind of lens through which we look at all experience. So in this way with these four establishments or four foundations of mindfulness, our meditation takes in all of the possible experiences that could arise and pass away as we sit here in the present moment. So what I'd like to instruct tonight, and, and of course since we don't have beginners in the room, the beginners are in the small room, we're going to sit first just hearing, just being with the breath, coming back to the breath over and over and over again, for as long as you want to, until you find that the mind, like these six animals around the pole, the mind has rested, the mind has settled down, it has come to rest. And then to notice what arises and pay attention as, with as much clarity as you can and with as much depth as you can so that your mindfulness is not um, superficial but it actually, so it's not like a cork on the water but it's like a stone that drops into the water with every object that comes into view in the mind whether it's body, body posture, breath, uh, feelings of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral or uh, the moods of the mind and thoughts and emotions also come. But that's not to mean that your, your mindfulness should be jumping all over the place, but that you actually let the mind settle down through the breath and then when something arises, pay attention 
so sound may arise and we pay attention to sound or a thought arises in the mind and we pay attention to the thought and paying attention means we notice it's arising to the best we can of our ability we, we pay attention to it while it abides what's it like to have a thought in the mind without getting engaged in its content and then we, we notice when it falls away when it disappears from view and if nothing is particularly compelling the attention nothing is arising in the consciousness we can keep the attention like that pole on the breath so I hope that's not too confusing I hope that that's clear and uh, you know see how you go so don't have too many demands on yourself for meditation just if, if all that you are is present really present in this moment for what is true and what is arising that's enough and so we're not going for particular states to arrive we're not hoping our meditation is going to you know we're going to be like you know have some wonderful revolution it would, revolution it would be great if we did but you know let's not be too demanding um, and but the simple presence of attention simple mindfulness is as we all know because I'm assuming we've all practiced as we all know that there as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it the miracle of mindfulness that there is a real transformation that happens when we're willing to be here when we're willing to be present for what is true in this moment without adding anything without being too demanding of our uh, circumstances without needing it to be this way or that way but simply to be here to be here fully completely without reservation for the um, arising of experience and its passing literally to shift from being lost to being present for our lives so let's sit together. Are there any questions about practice, the meditation practice itself, or any of the remarks I made in the beginning? And by the way, I'm so sorry I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Gina Sharp. When you, when you gave the instruction to... Can I have your name? Oh, Marcy. Marcy, hi. Um, when you gave the instruction to... Um, like when you use the image of a, of a cork resting on the surface of the water or a stone, I, I was trying to... I guess I was confused about what that meant. So like when something would come up, I would, uh, wasn't sure how much I should examine it. So I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit about that about examining whatever is arising or what you meant um, by going mm -hmm. deep yeah. 
the, the difference between looking at something as from this aspect of a cork on the water or a stone dropping into the water. So it's actually a um, it's actually a simile used by the Buddha. And the instruction is essentially that whatever is arising in our experience should be known and should be known intimately, deeply. And so I notice, for instance, in my own practice that sometimes if I'm not, if I'm not uh, impeccable or precise, that my attention will, you know, so I'll notice a thought arising. And instead of being really precise about uh, the nature of that thought, I can get caught really easily in the content of it. So the difference between knowing the process of a thought and the content of a thought is really key. Because if we, if we approach the content of the thought at all, we'll get caught. It's just the nature of thought. We get caught in a train of associations that go way down the line. And you know, we may start with simply hearing a sound. And we notice hearing. And then the mind says something like, wow, that's a really beautiful bell. And at that moment, we have a, we have a choice of noticing the thought arising and staying a while and passing, or getting caught by the content, which is, um, oh, the last time I heard a bell like that, I was in Italy. And it was so fabulous, God. What, was, what summer was that? That was summer of 2008. Yeah, it had a pretty rough year that year. Oh, that was the year that blah, 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 you know. So, so what happens is we get caught by the content. And that's essentially because we didn't penetrate the, the process of thought. We didn't really pay attention to what's it like for a thought to arise in the mind stay for a while and then disappear. But we were kind of dreamy. Our, our attention was right on the surface so that we got pulled down. If we had been um, precise and penetrating about that, we'd have noticed the thought arising. Or we'd have even, not even, we'd have noticed first the sound of the bell and hearing and what's hearing like and the resonance in the ear of the, of the sound. And so we really be paying attention, so we're dropping into experience rather than just staying on the surface of experience. Do you understand? Yeah. So, thank you. Can you just go give a few more examples of how you stay with that process? It's interesting, that kind of which process? Well, instead of getting hooked into the content, mm -hmm. what's some few techniques to kind of stay with the whole quality of the thought and nothing more? Yeah, so um, one, another way of doing that would be to simply notice that thinking has arisen. Or, or actually, I said with the bell, noticing hearing. 
in the same way we can um, notice thinking. And there is the noting practice. How many of you don't know about noting practice? Quite a few of you. So uh, the way you note uh, what's happening in your experience is essentially you make a really small, silent um, note in the mind. So when the, when the bell sounds, just I'm going to sound the bell. Just notice hearing. So anybody, what did you notice? So John, what did you notice? The so you noticed the vibration the tone and the tone change. Oh, you're just scratching your head. <laughs> anybody else? Just. Yeah, so you can notice the resonance. But how do you notice the resonance? Hmm? Do you hear it? Where do you hear it? Everywhere. Everywhere. Is that really true? You hear it dispersing. Anyone else? How do you hear it? you hear it vibrate in your ear. So what happens is the, be the, the, the clangor hitting the bell is a sound object it, uh, the, that produces sound or produces vibration actually. And that vibration hits the ear door, the sense door of the ear and it produces hearing consciousness. That's how that happens. And if you pay attention over and over and over again, you'll actually be able to notice the difference between the bell, the sound of the bell, the, the receiving of it in the ear door, and the arising of hearing consciousness. And then that, that vibration is hitting the ear. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's pretty amazing that something outside of us vibrates in that tympanic ear and sound is produced. We hear something. Or if we're deaf, we don't hear it at all. That's, that's also pretty amazing. So everything has to work. But of course, if we just hear the bell, we go, oh, that's the bell. Well, you know, let me get up and, you know, it's time to go, right? We haven't noticed anything about our experience. And we haven't even noticed how the sound appears from nowhere and it goes back into nowhere. It comes from the void of silence and back into the void of silence. So that's, um, you know, that's what we're doing we're beginning to notice what is actually true in our experience. So we can do that with the bell, but what happens when your boss is yelling at you, right? So that's sound too, that's hearing, hearing, hearing. And if you just sit there and say hearing, 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 he or she may not be so happy with you, right? But that's how you start. So that 
if you're, if you're hearing the sound of your voice, boss's unhappy voice, and you're knowing that's what your experience is right now, is the sound of this unhappy voice, that begins to take apart all of the different things that are happening in that moment. So the first thing that's happening is hearing. And then what's also happening is there is not only vibration in the ear and, and, and uh, hearing consciousness, but now thinking is starting to happen. And there may be shame, or there may be um, some story about this is unjust and she shouldn't be yelling at me, I didn't do it. Or, and so you can get sucked into that story or you can notice, oh, there's sound, there's hearing, and there's this whole thing starting to happen with the chest, the heart is starting to flutter, stories are coming in the mind, the body is, the palms are sweating, the, the, the heart is pumping, uh, the, there's heat coming in the face, all of that. And if we could just sit in the midst of that and know that right here in this moment, before we start to react, our response is going to be very different than if we simply start to react immediately because whatever thought comes into our mind, that's what we're going to say. So starting with this very simple exercise of hearing the sound of the bell, the brain and the mind starts to get trained in responsiveness. So we start to know our experience in a really intimate and deep way so that our, the reactivity that's usually produced by uh, sense objects coming to contact the sense doors be, starts to become responsiveness because we actually know what's happening. We're not just caught by whatever story comes in the mind and we're not fooled by the emotions and the physical experiences that are happening and coming together as a constellation to produce reactivity. And this is a, this is a complex system, this organism, that when we meditate, our path of meditation is really starting to uh, support us in beginning to know the experience so intimately and so deeply in such a precise way that our reactivity becomes responsiveness. So that's how that works, more or less, right? We could, we could be a lot more detailed about it, but that's good enough for now. So does that, does that work? So, um, I'm really happy to hear your questions. Whatever, you had a question. Yes. <clears throat> you given an example of noting, using the example of the bell. Can you speak in? Thank you. You've given a very good example of noting, the noting practice. You'd given an example of noting using the bell, a, a physical sensation that arises or that impacts the mind, the consciousness. Perhaps you could give another example of noting, noting of the thoughts that arise mm -hmm. in the 
practice mm. during practice. So noting thoughts. So so noting, because I've always um, wondered about when noting becomes thinking in itself. How do we keep the noting, you know, precise? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Um, So, you could keep the noting precise, but the standard is good enough. The standard is good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. So you use the word precise, and it's wonderful to be precise. However, in the noting practice, the noting is not so much that you're reminding the mind of, that you're hearing, because you know you're hearing. But actually, what it's doing is bringing the attention to the hearing itself. So when we make a note of hearing, the mind is, is really pay, is, is turning to the hearing itself. And um, that hearing itself is not so, so, I'm sorry, the noting itself is not so much, well, let's see. Am I hearing a sound, or is it the vibration in the ear? Is it, should I note vibration, or should I note hearing? Or it's not so much that as it is to be able to turn the attention fully to the experience of hearing. So, if you're thinking, you can make the um, you can make a note of planning, or remembering, or. Um, uh, not liking, or hating, or um, whatever, is, whatever is happening, but it's not so much that you worry about, is that really what's going on, as what's actually happening that I'm calling planning, that I'm calling remembering, right? So we know words are really imprecise. They'll always be imprecise. But the actual experience itself is very precise once the attention takes it in, right? So don't worry so much about, you know, whether it's, is it memory, is it remembering, or is it harking back, or is it, you know, it, it's, it's okay. You just, good enough is, is, is the standard. There, right where you are, that's fine, great. Hi. Uh, Hi. My question, um, I guess, has to do with, uh, when I start to, I, I guess I've been doing it, I didn't know it was called noting. I didn't know it was called noting, but uh, I guess I've been sort of doing, trying to practice that. Um, I often get overwhelmed with noting too many things mm -hmm. and um, sort of trying to keep track of. If, mm. I have a, if I have a physical feeling, whatever the emotional response to that physical feeling is, and then some thought about it, and then anxiety because mm -hmm. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. too many things, and you know, mm. on and on and on. So I'm just wondering, um, if you have advice about how to uh, either pare down um, mm -hmm. and focus on one thing at a time, or I'm not sure. That's just something I'm mm -hmm. struggling with. Okay, so um, f first of all, before I answer you, did the beginners come in? Yes? Okay, so I just wanted to say welcome to you. Um, So one thing that's really interesting about consciousness is it only admits one thing at a time. Did you know that? We can't think about two things at the same time. We think we're thinking about two things at the same time because it's going really quickly, 
right? The mind is going back and forth between the two things, but it's not thinking about two things at the same time. So our, our experience can be really rapid, right? So there's a, there's a thought, and then there's a feeling, and then there's a body sensation. But it's like, um, it's like a fire hose that has like this great pressure and so there's a huge um, uh, hose of water, a, ho a huge, I don't know what that word is, but it's, do you know what I mean? The, 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 you know, a thick thing of water, a thick column of water, thanks, that's what I mean. Thick column of water comes out of the hose. And we can actually, so that our, our, our experience can be like that, you know, so we're hearing we're hearing the sounds from my voice. There's hearing happening, and after the after the voice after the ears hear resonate with the with the sound from my voice, then some meaning starts to appear, right? And so we start to think about the meaning, and depending on the of the content of that meaning, there may be some emotional tone that arises or what arises with the hearing may be a feeling of, ooh, unpleasant, not liking what I, the unpleasantness of it, and quickly followed by not liking what I say, or, oh, pleasant, and then quickly followed by liking what I say. If we're really paying attention, we'll notice all of that. And we'll notice it even, we'll notice it in rapid succession. And at that point, we don't have to note. We just simply know it. But sometimes um, there can be, if we're not paying so much attention, there, there can be a kind of confusion about what's happening because it feels like everything is all jumbled up together, the hearing and the, the meaning and the, and the uh, pleasantness and the not liking or the, or the liking. And you can, so the drop that you take from that fire hose can be how you pay attention. So you pay attention, you can pay attention right now, for instance, like don't worry about what the meaning of my voice is, just simply pay attention to the vibration that is resonating in the ear. And as you're paying attention, and you can all do this, as you're paying attention to that, you can also notice whether it it's pleasant or unpleasant. For some of you, it will be pleasant, the sound of my voice. For some of you, it will be unpleasant because you don't like that tone. For some of you, it may be totally neutral. Eh, it's okay, right? And then if you, so you pay attention simply to the feeling tone, the Vedna, right? And then, this is the important piece. This is where freedom happens or doesn't happen. When it's pleasant, we love it and we want more. When it's unpleasant, we hate it and we don't want any more. We want it to go away. We want her to stop talking right now, right? And when it's neutral, we ignore it. We're onto something else that has a charge. And that's where the Buddha pointed to say it's possible to be free. 
that we can actually receive experience that's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and notice that, rather than the, the mind and the body and the, and the emotions jumping into the uh, pushing away or, and the, or, or the grasping, right, I want more, or the delusive, deluded ignoring. So, so I'm going a little bit further than the question you asked, but what I meant by the drop from the column of water is you can just simply pay attention to one thing that's happening if you feel as if there are like four or five or ten experiences happening all at the same time. You direct your attention, so you take one drop of that column of water and you pay attention to it. And, and my experience, in my experience, what the best piece, to, the, the wisest thing to do is to look first at physical sensation. Because it's the grossest, and because the body always has, has some um, resonance with what else is happening, with the thoughts and with the emotions. So something will always be happening in the body. This, the, the, the Buddha said this um, fathom-long body has the whole world in it, right? Because uh, what, what resonates in the body then turns into something in the mind. And he said in the mind, with our minds, uh, with our thoughts, we shape the mind. And with, a, with the shape of the mind, we shape the world. So if you start with the body, if you understand what's happening in the body, you'll understand your reactivity. And if you understand your reactivity, that will cut the bondage that you have to the reactivity that's happening. Because you'll understand what's actually happening in the body that's impelling the, um, the reactivity. And then you have a choice. There's a, that's a choice point of how you will respond rather than react. So if you start with the body, so now, you know, there's a, feel, a tightness in the gut or throbbing in the head or heat in the, or heat in the eyes or the throat feels tight or something happens in the body. And we go, oh, that's what I thought was um, anger. Right, is some constellation of bodily sensations. And now when we understand that, instead of being impelled to um, it, send that anger out into the world, we simply stay with what's happening and then make some decisions about what we actually want to express in the world. But if we're not aware of it, then the anger takes over, we say the words and we we regret it later on, or we have some terrible um, consequences from what we said. So do you understand? So what begins to happen is, instead of thinking of this as a practice, we're understanding it as a path. And this path is a full path. It's not just a path of meditation that gives us a little bit of relief from our pressure or, or our stress, although that certainly happens. But actually, it's a path to the end of suffering.
and it's a path that has not only meditation but has wisdom and ethics um, in, included so that, so that we understand deeply the nature of our life and from that understanding we understand the value of non-harming and through the value of non-harming we begin to live an ethical life and when we live an ethical life it's possible to sit down and have the mind be still because it's not full of remorse and regret so you can see how this all un unfolds you know that we talk about a little bit of a, a technique of meditation but it really blossoms into some a much larger picture of what it is we're doing uh, this isn't actually so much a question, um, but I just wanted to share that I recently um, <clears throat> had the opportunity to apply the pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, neutral um, noting to a situation uh, recently. Um, we, we stayed in on Friday night, and um, right after we laid out our dinner, um, all of our power blacked out all down the street. Some circuit broke on the, on the street. I actually would have felt better if we weren't alone in this, but it was, it was just our block, and not even just our block, but our side of the block. And it was during the height of the heat wave. And so the air conditioner went off, and it was just boiling hot outside, and it was going to be like that all night. You know, we asked the cops when they showed up, we asked the construction men, it was gonna be that way all night. And my mind instantly went into, you know, how unfair this was and how much this was going to suck and how much this does suck. And I mean, it just, and then of course I went into every like, you know, real or imagined past injustice and everything that can go wrong in this world. It just kept, you know, and um, then I guess it was about midnight. I, oh, and on top of this, we had exhausted all of our everything we, we, we'd had to talk about, so we were bored, too. And um, so, so we decided to go to bed, and um, I'm laying there in bed, and I'm not getting any sleep. And my mind is still doing what I had just described, and then I remembered pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And my, at first, I, I was trying to talk myself out of it, saying it wasn't so bad, and it could be worse, and then I was, I was even... You know, like okay, let's do some meta phrases, and I was I was working with that. Not that meta is bad, but 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 at that point, um, I was just like, okay, be honest. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? I just remembered right then. I said, it's just unpleasant. And when I just labeled it unpleasant, I stopped all the storytelling, and you know, I I didn't spiral off in a million directions. I was just with the feeling of unpleasant, and. Um, I had to sit there with it for about six hours, but it really made things a lot, lot better. Mm, <laughs> There's just a little anecdote. Mm, thank you. <laughs> the lady behind you. Right here, yeah. Thank you so much for um, reminding us, and me in particular, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, You mentioned a term, choice point, that I've only ever heard one person before say. Um, well, I guess I don't have to be embarrassed in these settings. My therapist of 15 years, um, whom I, I don't see anymore, but I've always remembered that phrase. I had never heard it before. And yet, 
and I believe you were talking about the choice point in terms of that point, which I guess the, the Buddha pointed toward where we have a decision to make, where we have the freedom to respond rather than to react. And hopefully, if one's mind is clear, um, the impetus to choose skillfully for that particular situation. My question, though, my mind moving ever so lightningly fast, there was an association. When you said choice point, I immediately framed a question. Hmm, what is this choice point versus choiceless awareness? Because I've been around these teachings and teachers for long enough. Um, and even most recently, Friday night with Amatana Santi, she devoted a large part of her talk to choiceless awareness. And I wondered if you could, so I'm a bit confused. I wondered if you could speak a bit to this idea of there being someone who's making a choice in a choice point situation versus this mm -hmm. choiceless awareness. Mm. So they're really two very different things. So choiceless awareness is sometimes the term that's used for a meditation in which we simply sit in the midst of our experience and we're not choosing what, what we're going to be aware of, right? So the mind is, and the attention and the awareness is simply wide open and what is arising is arising and passing away and the awareness is simply receiving it, knowing what is here, knowing when it arises, knowing as it's abiding and knowing as it's passing away. So that's choiceless awareness. And it's a really great question because um, I think what happens a lot of the time when we, when we describe this and when we even describe um, uh, what the practice is on the path of knowing our experience before we respond, that Buddhism then gets a really bad rap, right? And the rap is that we're really passive. That because we're just kind of sitting there like, you know, inert protoplasm, right? Okay. Just simply knowing what's happening and just watching things come and go. That. Um, it's not for me if I'm an activist, and it's not for me if I really want to get something done in the world. But actually, um, what it's, what it's, me the, the, the meaning of choice points is that we're actually not being driven by unconscious uh, feelings, but because we're making all of the, all of our experience conscious and um, aware that we're being aware of our feelings that we're establishing a ground of wisdom so we're establishing a ground where we know exactly and precisely what our experience is and knowing precisely what our experience is and what our reaction is to it we don't have to give expression to that what we give expression to is not aversion, delusion, and uh, greed. But what we do give expression to is kindness, compassion, 
generosity and uh, wisdom. So wisdom and compassion, I think, takes care of all of those um, categories of, of attitudes of mind. So if we're, if we're precisely aware of what's true, it's usually, um, it's not necessarily whatever is coming up in reactivity. What it is, is um, experience at the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, thinking. That's, that's the totality of experience, the Buddha said in one of his suttas, is just experience at those six sense doors. But what happens often is all of those experiences come together in a kind of constellation of um, uh, physical experiences, emotional experiences, mental experiences, and the constellation can produce very strong emotions. Those very strong emotions have the capability of directing us into activity that is regretful, from which we're going, we will often have deep remorse. The ability to pause, to know what is happening, both physically, I'm sorry, both is not a good word, physically, mentally, and emotionally, to understand the, the experience of that, and then to make a choice about what we want to express, what is wholesome and skillful rather than what is unwholesome and unskillful, that's a choice. And even if it means that there's injustice that we're dealing with, and so whatever um, is coming up in terms of a response is righteous because there's something that needs to change, we are doing so, we, we have a choice to do so in a way that doesn't add more hatred, more anger, and more unskillfulness to, into the world. So that's the choice point is, we, in a way, we, the choiceless awareness is, a, is an acknowledgement that in, in, for the most part, we have no control over what's coming up in the, in the, in the thought mind because it's everything that happens happens as a result of causes and conditions so even our thoughts are a result of causes and conditions our previous conditioning our family of origin our friends our teachers our religion or everything that we've learned every this moment is a culmination of everything that's gone before so there are causes and conditions over which we for a large part, to a large degree, have absolutely no control over, right? So the choiceless awareness is saying, we're just aware of what's arising and what we begin to see is, oh, these thoughts are coming and I didn't ask them to come. These emotions are coming, I didn't invite them. These physical sensations are happening. I certainly didn't say, okay, now we're gonna have throbbing in the belly. 
right? So, we, so in a way, our awareness has to be choiceless because we're not saying, okay, now we're going to think this thought and let's pay attention to it, right? The thought's going to, it pops up in the mind. But how we respond is definitely something that we have some influence and control over. So we may, so from our wisdom and compassion, we make some decisions about what it is we're putting into the world, right? And so a murderous thought could come in the mind. In some ways, we're not to blame for that, right? Somebody does something, it's like, oh. So this thought comes in the mind, we don't have to take ownership of it. I'm going to kill him. We don't have to take ownership of that. We can watch that come because we're trained. We watch that thought arise. We let it stay for as long as it needs to, and we let it go. We don't grasp it. And we certainly don't listen to its dictates. Ah, oh, so there's another possibility now. There's a choice. I can be strong, powerful, express my opinion, express what needs to happen, and maybe even do it in a really strict and stern way, but I don't have to do it with hatred. Even though everything in my belly and my head and my thoughts and my emotions are telling me I hate this, we have a choice. What do we want to put out into the world? And how much, and what do we want to encourage in our own mind stream? What, 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 do you, what do you want your mind stream to look like? Do you want it to be full of thoughts of hatred and greed and confusion? Or do you think it might be a nicer idea or a better idea? Or certainly one from a practitioner. If we're practitioners on the path, we understand the value of generosity, of kindness, of clarity. So that's where we have a choice. And we do, we definitely have a choice right there. But much of the time, because we are in bondage to the reactivity, because we haven't noticed it, we're just like, it comes up and we act on it. And that's what meditation, this is what the path does. It gives us the opportunity to pause. That, because that's what we train when things are not hot, when things are cool, and nothing in particular is happening. We train the mind. So that when the really difficult situation arises, the mind is already trained. We don't have to, at that moment, be trying to train it, because good luck with that. Things are much too hot. But, uh, but if, we're, if we've been training the mind all along, then it's trained, so that when these situations arise in our lives, we don't have to do anything. The mind, the mind says, nope, we're not going there, we're going here, because that's where we've trained it to go. So all of the practice that we do of loving kindness, of presence, of loving presence, all of that, and compassion, and equanimity, and, jo and, and appreciative joy, the Brahma-viharas, the mindfulness practice, all of these practices that we do, they're all skill training. They're deep training of skills in the mind. 
so that when, when these situations arise, we're, we're looking at it and we're responding to it with a trained mind, not with an untrained heart. Yeah, and, w and what you are sharing about is very pertinent to my question. Um, my question has to do with um, processing and also, you know, just being uh, being. I'm sorry, I didn't get the first word. It has to do with processing, being aware of the Trey Martin situation that happened and the verdict and processing that and. I don't know if you've spoken about it or not, um, but I just wanted to get um, have a have a to see what your th your thoughts were on it and and in processing it and being connected to it um, as in relationship to this country and the practice and the path. How much time have we got? <laughs> yeah. So you know, the practice of equanimity is a really deep practice. And as you all know, equanimity is, um, it's not only a Brahma Vihara, but it's, so it's the fourth Brahma Vihara of the four Brahma Viharas. It's the seventh factor of awakening, of the seven factors of awakening. And it's the tenth parami, the tenth quality of the mind of a Buddha. And it's, uh, it's in a way, the quality of mind and heart that expresses freedom. Freedom from conditions. That our minds and hearts can be unbound from the, the need for conditions to be a certain way. The Buddha talked about eight worldly winds gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And he said that all of these worldly winds are constantly blowing through our lives. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, is there anybody who has only had praise and gain and pleasure and fame? Put your hand up. I want to meet you or loss and displeasure and disrepute and blame. Nobody's had just either of those sides of the balance sheet. We've all had all of them. And peace, the Buddha said, is the highest happiness in relationship to equanimity, this quality of wisdom that knows these eight worldly winds. So, one of the ways of practicing to develop equanimity is to look at um, 
civilizations that have come and gone, the Ottoman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek and the Roman Empires, even lately the British and the Russian empires all come and gone, that over time we live in this vast universe of galaxies and supernovas and novas, a universe in which 21% of the atmosphere has been oxygen for billions of years, and that if it went down one or two percentage points or went up one or two percentage points, either the, the, a lightning strike would set the whole world on fire or, we, or our, the other way our lives would not be sustainable and the entire world, the entire universe would become extinct. So equanimity asks us to look at our lives and at the lives and at the universe and the, that we live in from that vast perspective. And yet. We live in an imperfect human realm where there is racism, there is environmental despoliation, there are two and a half million people incarcerated. We have the highest uh, incarceration rates in the world. I was just teaching a retreat with Christina Feldman who lives in England and she told me that in England there are how many people, she said, do you know how many people there are in prison with life sentences? And I said, no, and she said, 27. Now, having worked in a maximum security prison for women, there may have been, of the 900 inmates, there were probably, in that one prison in New York State, uh, probably, I'd say, a good half of them had life sentences. And of those people who are incarcerated, most of them are black men. So something's up in our culture, or maybe something's down in our culture. So we live with these two realities that we're living in a society that is, that has, that uh, has totally benefited from the time that um, Africans were brought to America as slaves. The whole culture, the whole society has been benefiting from that economic setup, clearly to the detriment of the Africans that were brought here and then subsequently to all of their um, descendants. So we're living in this, as Buddhists or as practitioners, we're living in these two realities. Where there is wisdom and compassion and there is imperfection and injustice. 
and, but as, and as practitioners, we are acutely aware of our own reactivity. We are acutely aware also not only of our reactivity to this particular um, injustice that is um, repugnant. And we can have all kinds of, and I'm sure that we, if, you know, if we polled everybody in this room, we'd have several sets of um, uh, opinions about the verdict, right? All of which have some small um, relevance to what's really true. And as a lawyer, I can certainly, I've certainly known for a hell of a long time that it's not a justice system, but a legal system. And having worked in the legal system, I'm, I respect it because it's what keeps us between, you know, from, from being completely uncivilized. But it doesn't mean it's perfect. And it doesn't mean that we ignore the oppression that results from it being a legal system and not a justice system. And then the question is, what to do? And what to do with respect to our own body, mind, heart? Because that's the first place that as practitioners we work. And watch our own anger arising and rising. And here's a place of choice. Can we, can we actually see the anger arising? You know, and there are two different kinds of anger. One is anger because you don't get what you want, right? You want something and you can't have it. Or you have it and it turns out to be not what you thought it was. Or you get it and you lose it. That's one kind of anger. That's totally useless anger. Because that's, I just described all of the different possibilities in what, with life. And then there's, a, then there's another kind of anger, and there's an anger that's a righteous anger that sees clearly that it, there's a kind of discernment in it that sees what is true without any kind of rose-colored lenses. But as we were saying before, we have a choice at that point. What do we put out into the world, and how do we respond rather than react? And we can't respond if we stay in anger. We can only react. So on the one hand, we know what is true. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. And on the other hand, we can imagine what is possible for us as all as human beings and we can want to contribute to that. So we can know what's true, and we can imagine what is possible. And we can only imagine what is possible clearly if we know how to work with anger.
And how do we work with anger? We work with anger by knowing that it's not who we are. Anger is not who we are. Anger is what arises in constellation between the body, the mind, and the heart in response to or in reaction to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. And we don't own it. It's not us, it's not who we are. But from there, from that place where we don't own it and it doesn't become who we are and it doesn't burn us up, because the Buddha used a lot of metaphors about fires and the putting out of the fire as Nibbana. So we don't allow it to burn us up, but we allow it to spur us on to some wholesome activity. And this, this is not a black and white thing. This is all of us together. We're not separate because that's the other piece of wisdom. The other piece of wisdom knows that we are not separate beings in this universe, but that we are all together. And I cannot be free until you are free. And you cannot be free until I am free. And if we know that, then we can work together in some kind of harmony where we're working from our hearts, not from some place of anger and fear, but from a deep place of caring for each other because we're all in this human predicament together. We are not separate. This illusion of separateness is probably the most pernicious illusion that we have as human beings. I think that's enough. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Okay. Um, in terms of the body, we were talking about the body and how feelings manifest in the body. And I have a moving meditation practice in addition to other practices. And I guess my question is, when anxiety manifests in the body or anger is in the body and you've had space from stories about what it is about, there are times where I feel movement is a way of entertaining the reactivity of that emotion. And then there are times where it feels like a way of allowing the energy to move in a different way. So I guess my question is, is there a place for movement in this practice? Could you stop moving for just, we have three minutes, four minutes. It would be really helpful if you would just stop moving. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of movement. <laughs> so that my, really my question is, is there a place for movement in a meditation practice like this? Or is it always coming from a place of reactivity? I'm not sure I understand that question. What do you mean um, by movement? So for, ex 
So for example, um, if I have anxiety that manifests in the body and I've gotten stories to step back about what that's about and my body wants to move, like that... that move how? Uh-huh. Like to just to follow the energy and how my body wants to move. That's a really hard question to answer because um, it's... It, it, we'd have to do some investigation as to exactly what that's about because sometimes we want to move because we're agitated and we can't stand the agitation but being with agitation is really helpful right because then we begin to understand it and and what happens so this is partly back to Francis's question about being deep in your awareness or being shallow, being superficial. So if you're, if you're really um, understanding agitation and you go deeply into it, it will open up all kinds of other, um, other information will come to you if you can be with the agitation and just know it for what it is. Because a lot of the time, superficially, what we think something is, is not what it is at all until we, drop, we keep dropping our attention into it. And it be, our attention, when our attention becomes deeper, we begin to access deeper information about these states of mind and heart and body. On the, excuse me, on the other hand, sometimes that kind of um, giving what we call giving your cow a large pasture to, to, to graze in can be very helpful in allowing whatever needs to come through to, to come through. So it's very hard, that's what I mean by it's really hard to give you an answer without really investigating with you exactly what it's about. And that's my exact conflict. <laughs> yeah, that's your exact... That's exactly my conflict. Yeah. Is that I'm well, uh, what I could suggest is that you try both. Try sitting through a, mo a, a, a period of time when you want to just scream from agitation, but do it not like, like you're mus muscling through it, but see if you can do it in the most relaxed, aware way as is possible and see what's happening in the body, mind, and heart. And then another time when it arises like that, do walking meditation. Do walking med. Don't just do a kind of, you know, um, amorphous thing. But do something intentional with the energy, like walking meditation, and see what happens. See what information you get from both, from both responses. You're welcome. So thank you very much for your attention. And um, I, I'm, I really appreciate the questions that you've asked. And I just want to say that I'm, I'm uh, that if I've said anything that is offensive or hurts, hurts you, that I deeply apologize. I'm just doing the best that I can to respond to your questions. And I really invite you with this question of uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman 
to s that if you if you feel that there is something that you really want to do, that you really begin by sending metta to every single person who is involved in that, by really being intentional in your kindness, certainly towards Trayvon Martin's family and the grief that they must be experiencing and to George Zimmerman's family because they have certainly not been um, at fault uh, in this affair but also to send metta to our country that where the system has created the opportunity for this entire difficult situation to happen and please do not let your hearts get bitter if there is something that you want to do about it please see what you can do that is really constructive um, because there is so much work to be done there is so much work to be done by all of us together not this separate community and that separate community but all of us together need to um, figure out how we can create a, a, an enlightened society where everyone has opportunity, where everyone has the ability to become educated and to the opportunities to do what is necessary to raise our families in peace and um, and to be able to walk around the world without fear but with the feeling, the, the, the uh, security of kindness as an atmosphere in which we're all operating. So thank you so much for your attention and your practice tonight. And let's dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception, omitting none, remembering the words of the Buddha in which he said, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings rising upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. May all beings be at ease. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.